Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 5. It's going to be Legend, wait for it, Dairy where we will be looking at chapter 12 of The Name of the Wind through a lens of anticipation. As always, we'll be examining a section of the book through our chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our lives. After our analysis, we will also be doing a Fernemos of the Week. After that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. And to wrap things up, we will have seven words from the book, and seven words from life. We've said it before, and we will say it again. There will be spoilers in this podcast. You have been warned. And before we get too far, let's make clear that we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. I don't want to have to say this every week, but I'm going to. Please understand that while it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we will not stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it, which is a little bit difficult in this episode since we are looking at everything through a lens of anticipation, and we realize that everyone is, in fact, anticipating book three. Now it's time for us to do a 45-second recap of this week's section. This week it's short, so you've got it easy this time, Phoenix. So I might have it easy, or I might be overly detailed. Well, that's an own goal if you are. Do you have a stopwatch ready? I'm ready in three, two, one, go. Both finishes his latest lesson quickly and goes to find Ben, who is talking with Quoth's parents. So naturally, Quoth eavesdrops instead of announcing his presence. He overhears the adults talking about the Chandrian, and it turns out that Ben knows a lot about them. Quoth is about to leave when the conversation turns to his future. Ben sings Quoth's praises and tells Arladin and Lorien that their son should go to the university when he is older. This sets up a huge chunk of the plot from here on out. 26.65 seconds. There's not a whole lot of action, so to speak, in this section, so you kind of had it easy. No raspberries yet. None yet. Yet. I'm going to keep it that way. You'll try. I'll succeed. <laughs> Good luck. Thank you. I mean, it was just one chapter. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now it is time to talk about the one chapter that we have chosen to read this time. Now, quick note, we realize it's a very short section, but it's also very dense. And I think the theme that we're talking about here is going to resonate through the rest of the story. So without any further ado, let's talk about anticipation. Wait for it. So this entire section is told through the perspective of Quoth as he is eavesdropping on his parents having a conversation with Abanthi. And that conversation is really going to set Quoth on a path that will define him pretty much for the rest of his life. So there's three little bits of anticipation that this 
chapter lays out. The first is the anticipation that the other troopers are feeling towards Arladin's song about the Chandrian. I think it's quite insightful to mention that after a certain amount of time, anticipation sours. That's true. It can have that effect. A little bit of anticipation can be fun, but it also can have a negative impact on your ability to appreciate the thing once it actually arrives. There comes a point where information about something that isn't actually the thing that you want, but is rather speculation or little hints about the thing that you want, wind up taking over the fulfillment part from when you would get something. Think about how so many fans of the Song of Ice and Fire books, so many of us, were so looking forward to what the end of the story would be. We all anticipated that Martin would finish the series, or at least extend the series, before the end of the show. For a lot of book fans, the show fell flat. There's a bit of that going on, knowing that the Kingkiller Chronicle is not done, that it has been many years since the second book came out, and there's anticipation about adaptations for film and adaptations for TV. I want to see these things, but there's also that flip side of anticipation where I'm worried that this will mean that we don't get the third book, or that we get it very, very, very much later, or that the story itself may never have a resolution. I know that feeling. And I also think that sometimes anticipation can do this trick where you build up in your head that what you want to happen is what will happen and what ought to happen. And then when it doesn't work out that way, even if what's there is actually pretty good, it never lives up to what you wanted it to be, or it doesn't match what you wanted it to be. You then end up being unable to appreciate the thing for what it is. In some ways, Quoth's anticipation is treated this way as well. Spoilers! We already gave you a spoiler warning, but spoilers! 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 All done? Good? Okay, good. We got that out of our system. Both will never have a resolution to this anticipation because his father was killed by the Chandrian. And I suspect we as an audience may never know the full truth of what this song would have looked like. So I, I think that that's devious. I think that that's a very good psychological trick on the part of Patrick Rothfuss. It's good storytelling. This is also Chekhov's gun, as it were. It would be really silly if... Patrick Rothfuss were to tell us this story loaded with foreshadowing and hints at the future, and then turns out the Chandrian actually don't have anything to do with anything in the story at all. That would be really silly. That would, again, with the storytelling aspect, be reminiscent of the Golden Screw story. The other bit of anticipation that we get is these little drips of knowledge about who the Chandrian are and how they work. So we get a little bit of discussion about their signs and some of their actions. One of the things that we will hear in more detail later, 
Ben says something about the shadow hamed, which shows up again in the wise man's fear. Shayan, who is talking about the Rinta, who are also the Chandrian, tells us a rhyme. Cyphus bears the blue flame. Sturcus is in thrall of iron. Pharaoh chill and dark of eye. Usnia lives in nothing but decay. Grey Delcenti never speaks. Pale Alenta brings the blight. Last there's the Lord of the Seven. Hated, hopeless, sleepless, sane. Alaxel bears the shadow's hame. It's clear that Ben has heard this before, though it may not be something that has stuck completely in his brain, maybe because he's not researching the Chandrian. It's the beginning of everything. There's also a confirmation that there are only seven Chandrian. We start learning that it is really hard to pin down anything about the Chandrian. It's kind of like trying to nail maple syrup to a tree. Very tricky, in other words. The other thing that we see is that the Chandrian are not something that people talk about lightly. And it's also seen as strangely frivolous as a pursuit of knowledge. People are secretive. They talk about the Chandrian in whispers. They don't say their names. Every Chandrian seems to have more than one name. Alaxel, Haliax, Ferul, Cinder. And the names of things are very important in this story. I love how Ben, who is an educated man, even says, I don't want to just say their names. I don't want to take the chance. Because he knows just how powerful a name really is. Later on, Shayan tells Quoth that you can only say their names once in any given location, any more than that. And you're tempting fate. You're tempting them to come and kill you. And here's Quoth's father making a song for the last year and a half about these very dangerous figures in this world. Let's hope he doesn't say the names too many times in the same place. Chances are he did. As we shall see in a few episodes, he did. As I say, anticipation here. This is like in a horror movie. The first few scenes are all about building anticipation by showing you something with ominous music and menacing camera angle and then nothing happens. And that's kind of what we're seeing here. We're given this little trickle of knowledge that gives us enough to build our excitement and anticipation to find out what it is, only to have that cruelly taken from us as Ben says, I don't want to say it out loud. We anticipate at this point that we're going to find out what this song is. People who have reread the story have a different type of anticipation, knowing that Kvothe is sent off to go and collect firewood to give his parents some space, and that he will come back and his entire world will be shattered and his troop will be dead. That's pretty heavy. In terms of signs that we get, we get a lot of half-truths, I think. Things that could be attributed to more than one person, not one person, not be accurate, be overblown. But one of the main signs of the Chandrian is a blue flame. Another sign is that iron will crumble. And there's also sudden blight or pestilence on crops. We as an audience will never hear this song. 
But Lorian does ask Ben to help finish the song. I wonder if Ben knows the song. If we as an audience will eventually get to hear it, if both ever goes back to find Ben. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a bit. Um, again, for future knowledge, after Ben leaves the troop, we never really hear from him again. But presumably he goes on to lead a happy life. And I wonder if Quoth ever goes back to him at all. The other bit of anticipation that Quoth gets, particularly, is the knowledge that he could go to the university. That he could really find himself in a position to become this great arcanist. Maybe he's not even thinking about being great. Maybe he's just thinking about his insatiable need for learning. He's thinking about what he could find in those archives. At this point, he doesn't have a specific set of knowledge that he wants. The fact that he could have access to this archive filled with books beyond count is incredibly alluring to him at this point. He's in the stage where the acquisition of knowledge for its own sake is its own goal. Kvothe is a sponge. Kvothe wants to absorb more knowledge. He is 11 or 12 years old. He has an insatiable need to learn, even if he doesn't have a desire to learn deeply. He wants to know everything, especially when it's something about him. And when Abanthe says, your son is very bright, beyond bright, Quoth has always had an ego. Even in this story, he's telling about himself. He tells about how he has a massive ego at 11 years old. And he cannot resist continuing to listen as Abanthe brings up the potential for him to learn even more and to go to the university. Most students start when they're, what, 17 or older? But I bet to his very young brain, waiting another six or seven years? That'd be torture. That's almost his entire living memory. What's also interesting is we get our first introduction of the trooper's hero, Ilian, who is this great songwriter and luthier and master storyteller. And that gives us these two foundational hero characters that Kvothe models himself after, the other being Taberlin the Great, who knows the names of all things, is this master wizard who can summon lightning from the clear sky, who can do all these fantastic things. And then you have Ilian, who is this master bard, which I think speaks to two sides of Kvothe. One is Kvothe the hero, and then also Kvothe the storyteller. And musician. And musician, yes. These are both crucial aspects of him. And we also get these glimpses of what a future Kvothe might be like. Kvothe is this master arcanist. Kvothe is this master musician and storyteller and poet. No, sorry, scratch that. Never a poet. <laughs> and then we also have Kvothe the merchant, which actually we get kind of a sense of that because of Kvothe's financial circumstances later on, he's forced to become very enterprising and concerned with the amount of money in his purse at any given instant, where he's constantly hustling, trying to make sure that his balance is in the black. These are all aspects of him that we will see throughout the story going forward. 
just to kind of wrap things up and to tie a bow around the anticipation. The end of the chapter reads, She smiled wickedly at my father, who appeared a little embarrassed. Then she kissed him. He kissed her back. That's how I like to remember them today. I snuck away with thoughts of the university dancing in my head. That tells you, if you're paying attention, they did. Anytime someone said, that's how I like to remember them, they don't have a happy ending. If you're a first-time reader, you don't know how soon they're going to die. But if you're familiar with tropes, it's very clear they're going to. They're going to be gone, probably sooner rather than later. Also, it shows how idealistic Foth is when referring to his parents. We never really see him complaining about his parents. We don't see him speaking ill of his parents at all in this story. He doesn't question their motives. He doesn't question their life choices. He idolizes them. And that's not unusual. I know that when I was younger, I had very uncomplicated thoughts about my parents. They were just good. They were always there for me. They were kind in all things. And looking back, I can see their flaws more readily, but that's because I've also gotten to know them as an adult. He never gets to have an adult relationship with his parents. He's always going to remember them as he knew them at 11. Perfect, loving, and kind. But then the very last bit is setting everybody up. The audience, both probably Quoth's parents and Abanthi, on this road where Quoth goes to the university. The university at this point in the story is a mystery. It's something that is talked about reverently, but not deeply. It's like if your only idea of what college is comes from watching the Dead Poets Society with these Ivy League schools and everyone just talking reverently and it's nothing like that. Or conversely, if all you know about college is Animal House. Again, it's also much more than just parties. It's something that you make out of it. That's definitely true. This morning we experienced some real-life anticipation, and we got to see both the good and bad sides of it. I was having a really hard time staying focused on what I was trying to actually do in the moment because I had so many different positive things in my head, such as I'm going to be officiating a friend's wedding, I'm going to be getting dressed up for Halloween, we're going to be hosting Thanksgiving at our place for the first time, all of these are good things. These are things that I'm really excited about and I really want to make sure we do them well. But at the same time, it made it really tough for me to just think about the tasks at hand. So from my perspective, watching you, your brain seemed to be doing a thing that my brain does all the time, which is thinking about all of the things that you have to plan for. And it makes it kind of hard to live in the present. You knew that... Your task was stand up, go to the kitchen, get a plate, get dessert, bring it back. But what your brain is doing is, I'm so excited for when my costume comes in. I'm so excited for when I get to officiate a wedding. I'm so excited for, I'm so excited for, I'm so excited for. And instead of thinking about the menial tasks that you have in front of you right at this moment, you're just thinking so much about all the things that are making you happy about what is to come. And while I'm sure that every single one of these things that is to come is going to be a wonderful experience when we get to it in that moment, 
Over planning and over anticipation can also be a problem. As any fan of a long running series can tell you, we're of course talking about Star Wars fans here. I think it would be disingenuous not to address the elephant in the room. Right. I mean, obviously, Patrick Rothfuss has been taking his time to get the third book, The Doors of Stone, just right. This chapter does have some prophetic bits in it, specifically when talking about how Arladin takes a very long time to write his song about the Chandrian. When you wait a few span or a month to hear a finished song, the anticipation adds savor, but after a year, excitement begins to sour. By now, a year and a half had passed, and folk were almost mad with curiosity. Yeah, <laughs> that pretty much nails it. One thing I'd also like to point out is that the dedication in this book is, and to my father, who taught me that if I was going to do something, I should take my time and do it right the first time. That is what we have to say about the anticipation for the next book. It is fine to be excited, and we're both excited. But I think it's up to us to not let that anticipation sour. I agree with you. It is important to remember that Patrick Rothfuss is a person. He's doing this by the ethos that he himself has espoused from the very beginning. And we'd have to be utter fools to ignore that. I also want to say we want to make sure not to let our anticipation of what we think it might be spoil our ability to appreciate the final book for what it actually is. And so while anticipation can be a lot of fun and it can lead to some pretty great things, there's always a flip side to it. Anticipation can blind us to our present reality, and it can also blind us to the thing that we're anticipating when it actually arrives. The flip side that I'm seeing to anticipation is dread, where instead of being excited for something that's coming up, dreading all the things that could be negative about your future interactions or your future experience. That's very real. It is something that happens a lot with an anxiety disorder. I have one. I try my best not to look at the darkest reading of everything. It's hard. Sometimes things that are innocuous fill me with a sense of dread, and sometimes things that should cause me anticipation and excitement can leave me over-preparing or leave me over-planning to a point that makes me kind of miserable. I love the idea of having Thanksgiving at our place. I love the idea of having our loved ones and our friends come and join us. But it also meant that we had to plan around some things. And we live with two little chaos Muppets, also known as cats, that the best laid plans, at least the young one will thwart. Oh boy, does he love to thwart. Our cat Sokka is a year old. He weighs 15 pounds. He is constantly either on the table, messing with the DVDs in the DVD rack, or on the counter. And while I don't know for certain that the idea of having a cat all over where the food surfaces will also be will gross everyone out, instead of asking people if they're going to have a problem, I have assumed that they will. <laughs> And there's still nothing I can do other than locking the cat in the bathroom where he will then proceed to rip up the carpet near the door. 
And I know that there are easy solutions of just, it's our house. You decided to come to our house. You know about the cats. But there's that little voice, that little anxiety monster kind of whispering in my ear about certain things. I am anticipating the happy parts of Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. So one way that this actually shows up in our lives that's kind of non-consequential and pretty safe way is let's say we're playing D&D. And if I'm the DM and I have a whole bunch of little chaos Muppets in the forms of players, I am anticipating a fun session. I am anticipating that they will go through this dungeon or this encounter or what have you that I have lovingly crafted. But I'm also anticipating that a lot of my players will try to break it. No, not us. And so sometimes what will happen is if I have a story that I think is very interesting, but I don't want the players to believe that they are being railroaded, I will give them what is essentially the illusion of choosing what way they go. Let's say they're in a room with multiple doors. The story that I'm anticipating them playing is pretty much behind whatever door they choose. So what you have presented them with is a quantum ogre. There is an ogre behind one of these 12 doors. And regardless of which door the players choose, it is that door that it's behind. The quantum ogre problem is something that the online dungeon mastering community, they have discussed this problem where oftentimes what players really want is agency. They want to feel like their choices matter and they don't want to be going down a railroad. The quantum ogre gives players the illusion that they had a choice in where they went, but the consequence of that choice is identical. So that ends up meaning that your two choices it wasn't really a choice at all. It was an illusion of choice. Then someone actually took the trouble to build a stat block for the quantum ogre, which I encourage you to look up if you ever have the chance because it is brilliant fun. A DM that I play with actually brought the Quantum Ogre into the game and we had to fight it. And it led to all sorts of weird hijinks and creative solutions and all around chaos. It was so much fun. Sometimes anticipation takes a form of something small, like anticipating your weekly D&D game. And sometimes anticipation can be for something as large as a huge life event like a wedding. I have friends who recently got married, and I saw someone tell them that once they're married, everything changes. And I think that that maybe sets them up for anticipating things that aren't going to happen. If you live together before you get married, the things that worked in your relationship will still work once you're married. And the things that didn't work aren't going to get any better because you got married. Now, they may get better if you work on them but that has nothing to do with your marital status. In order to combat some of that, we need to look at things realistically and not let the anticipation cloud the realities to bring it full circle. So now it's time for us to talk about our phronemos of the week. Aristotle defines the phronemos as the person who lives a life of practical wisdom. We ought to be modeling our life after. This week, there are really only four possible choices because there are only four characters that actually show up but one of them is Quoth and he obviously doesn't count so there's really only three possibilities Arladin, Quoth's father, Lorien, Quoth's mother, 
and Ben, Gvoth's teacher. Of the three of them, it came down to a question of two, Abanthi or Lorian. And I really got to give it to Lorian. She's easily the most perceptive of the characters here. She's able to figure out that having different signs for each of the Chandrian explains how they can appear in different stories, and if they aren't always traveling together, how you could have a mix and match of signs for them. So that's one example of her figuring out that, yeah, there's a way that this could happen. Another thing that we saw is she quickly realized what made Quoth different when discussing how he handled the difficulties that he had with, say, learning a chord on the lute. And that difficulty was because his hand was small. It was a physical difficulty. She quickly recognizes that this was different from the normal learning curve that most young musicians go through, that he was grasping things very quickly, and he was very rarely, if ever, making the same mistake twice. Lorian is our Fornemos two times in a row, but we don't really have a lot of characters to choose from. And I do believe that of all of the people in the very early bits of Quoth's story, Lorian has a lot of wisdom to share. And compassion, too. Mm -hmm. You can see in this also her affection for Arladen and the concern that she has for Quoth and her description of Quoth as a toddler with eyes big enough to eat the whole world. She understands exactly who Quoth is at a very deep level. That was my choice there. I think it was a very wise choice. Thank you. And I think, yes, she is one of the wiser characters in the book. If only Quoth learned from her. If only. All right, and so now it's time for us to take into account the lessons of Master Elodin, and it's your turn to share an interesting fact of the week. Now remember, you've got three chances to interest me, otherwise there be raspberries for you. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. So, interest me. All right, the name of the chapter that we read this time is Puzzle Pieces Fitting. And one thing about me is I absolutely love Lego. In fact, we are in a room full of Lego while we record. One thing that interested me was a story that I've heard a few times. Back in 1997, thousands upon thousands of Lego pieces wound up in the ocean when a container ship transporting them was hit by a wave that tipped it back and forth. It went 60 degrees over one way and 40 degrees over the other. A lot of those pieces, even today, 20-something odd years later, are still washing up on beaches. Yeah, but things fall off ships all the time. You gotta do better. But it's been 20-something odd years. Legos drift. But most of those Legos were sea-themed. So there's little plastic sharks all in the ocean, washing up on beaches. That's a coincidence, though. That's not interesting. Do better. Meh. Meh. I am determined there will be no raspberries. Very well. That's one strike. What's there next? All right. Something that might be relevant to your interest. Go on. I will. Just give me a second. This is relevant to a conversation we had yesterday. I am going to admit that there's a possibility that you are right. And that not washing your coffee cup might not be as disgusting as I think it is. There are actually some good reasons not to wash your coffee cup. Or rather, not necessarily good reasons to not wash your coffee cup, but maybe... It's not as awful as I might think. 
while yes, it will gather germs, if it's in your personal space, they're mostly going to be your own germs. So they're probably not going to make you sick. Just whatever you do, do not leave your coffee cup in a communal space like a communal kitchen. And the reason is that if you leave it in a public area, you'll be exposing your coffee cup to a lot more germs and most of them are commonly found in a bathroom, as in fecal bacteria. What I found actually very interesting is that the chances of your coffee cup being covered in poo are higher if your office has more men than women. There are a lot more varieties of bacteria floating around in a communal office kitchen that is dominated by men. Most of that is bacteria from bodily cavities. But it's also recommended that if you do choose to wash your coffee cup, do not use the office sponge because it's grosser than your coffee cup. One other thing though, is if you do use cream and sugar, it is recommended you at least rinse your coffee mug because otherwise mold will grow in it. But if you just drink black coffee and you don't share it with people and you don't leave it in a public space like an office kitchen, it probably won't make you sick. So it's probably not as gross as I think it is. So I would say that's an interesting fact except I knew all of that, which is why I don't wash my coffee cup. What's your third one? Wait, 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 wait. Knowing it does not mean it's not interesting. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it just made sense. You gotta do better. Your move. Fine. My last fact is something that is near and dear to my heart. I am aware that you probably already know this, but it's still interesting. Most of us were lied to as kids about color. We were told that if you mix red and blue, you'll get purple. What really happens is if you mix red and blue pigment, you will get mud. We are also told that the primary colors, yellow and red and blue, are colors that cannot be made from other colors. Also a lie. The primary colors are actually cyan, which is often thought of as a kind of blue, but it's its own color, and it cannot be made by other colors. Magenta, which isn't even really a wavelength of light, and it's kind of an imaginary color, but it exists. Yellow and black. And that can make the majority of the visual spectrum. Not all of it, but quite a lot of it. So the way that you actually get purple is by mixing magenta, which is kind of a pinky color, and cyan. That's the only way to get a nice rich purple. Furthermore, red and blue are not primary colors because they can be made up from other colors. Blue is actually made up of cyan and magenta, but not as much magenta as you would use to make purple. And red is made out of magenta and yellow, though not as much yellow as you would use to make orange. And even though they mean well, most elementary school teachers that teach about color lie to our children. Hmm. Well, given that we've been having these sorts of conversations since pretty much the day we met and it has never been boring to me, then I'm going to have to concede that yes, that's interesting. Why, thank you. You're welcome. All right. Now that it has come down to the wire and I have been saved from the dreaded raspberry, it is time for you to talk about the seven words you have chosen from the book. I have chosen the following. I'm old. You have to humor me. <laughs> Is that a subtle dig? 
Well, I mean, you always call me young one. I only call you young one from July to November. But we haven't reached November just yet as we record this, so I'm in the middle of being called young one a whole bunch. And for those of you who don't know, it is because I am moderately older than Will is. And it makes me laugh. And it gives me an excuse to call you young one. And the other thing is that I've always identified with grumpy old folks. I think it's actually quite common right now that people who are pushing 40 years old just look at each other and go, ugh, I'm so old. Up until my 30s, I didn't have random aches and pains for absolutely no reason. And the last couple days, my pinky toe has hurt for no Forking. reason. It's probably because there's been rain. Which is so stupid. Aren't you glad that you're a human barometer now? No, my knees are not happy about this. Yeah, I know. But you're old, so I have to humor you. <laughs> Touche. <sighs> Whatever, young one. <laughs> I had that one coming. What are your seven words from our lives? So they're not directly from our lives, but they're kind of indicative of how we feel about this time of year. Regardless of the rain and the cold and the fact that our bodies are breaking down and that it seems like fall is the time that just reminds us that our bodies are breaking down, the words that I have chosen are autumn paints in shades of brilliant fire. Mm, yeah, I absolutely have loved the leaves outside. Our neighbors have a Japanese maple that is the most brilliant red right now. And we can see it from our kitchen and our living room. It is so striking against the green trees and the dark steely sky. Both of us have absolutely loved autumn for years and years and years and years. One of our favorite things in the world is to go to a place called the Sylvia Beach Hotel. And that happens for us in the autumn when there are precursors to winter squalls coming across the ocean. And this hotel, which is over 100 years old, is all themed towards books. And we go there for a few days and stick our nose in a book, listen to the ocean roaring outside, and watch as the rain and the storms happen. And the top floor of the building kind of creaks. It's so comforting. Autumn is my favorite, favorite time. I love all the colors that are brought into this world by the trees. I love that even as the year is ending, there is so much reminder of how even the ending of things can be beautiful. Yeah, I absolutely adore that place. Getting curled up under a blanket with a book and a nice hot cup of coffee, just watching the waves outside and you can hear the roar of the wind. Oh. It's amazing. And I love going outside and seeing these boughs of great orange and red and yellow leaves that go over the streets and everything. And then how that slowly turns into a carpeting on the sidewalks. There's a tunnel of these sorts of trees on my way into work each morning. And I just absolutely love feeling like I'm in sort of this big tunnel of flames. It's a really cool effect. As we conclude here, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you so much for potting with me. Thank you all for listening to Tales from the Waystone.
Join us next week as we discuss chapters 13 and 14 of The Name of the Wind through a lens of the smartest kid in the room. Full disclosure, Foth is not the smartest kid in the room. The one who thinks they're the smartest kid seldom is. We would like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. All right, welcome to Whales from the Taste Stone. <laughs> I mean, last time we go Tales from the Wee Stone, now we go Whales from the Tailstone. Whales from the Taste Stone. <laughs>